to you, you, good evening, good evening to you, you, good evening, good evening, won't you share with a friend or two, good evening. Good evening to you, you, good evening, good evening to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues on Black Table Talk. I am your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Tonight is our Teachable Tuesday, where we talk all things Black, Black people, Black society, Black love, uh, Black polity. And so tonight we are back in our reading and discussion time of Black women, Black love. If you want to see the previous videos, all you have to do is go to our page at the top and click videos, and it will show you our previous segments on this particular book. Um, before we jump into it, and here's the cover, for those of you who may be wondering what we'll be reading from tonight, here is the cover. But before we jump into tonight's reading, I did want to uh, put a plug in. This is not a sponsored plug. This is just work I believe in. Um, but I did want to put a plug in for the 1619 Project book. This is um, a combination of stories from several different well-known people, all right? So I encourage you to invest in the work, invest in the work. And I really like the fact that they have a companion children's book to go along with the 1619 Project book, which is called Born on the Water. So I am encouraging people to invest in books that you know <laughs> will not probably be in some of your student libraries. They probably won't be in some of your schools this coming year um, because of the culture war that is happening right now. Um, so invest in it. Buy it for your own personal library. Um, buy it for your children this holiday season and make sure that you are investing in history that people are trying to hide and they would rather hide it than actually discuss it. So tonight, again, we are in Black Women, Black Love, and we are talking tonight, we're reading about, and then we'll have some discussion time, we're reading about reconstructing Black marriage and family formation. This is talking about um, right after the end of the Civil War, and what has happened to those families? What happened to those black families? What happened directly after um, the emancipation of the enslaved? What happened with Congress establishing the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, also known as the Freedmen's Bureau? How did that affect black love, black families, Black children, black women, and black marriage. So that's what we're reading about on tonight. I think it's very important for us to cover this history um, because I believe that we'll see how it ties into some of the same uh, complications and same difficulties that black parents and black families are facing today. Also, a good companion book to this one is another book that we have been covering on Fridays on our IG at Daring Dialogues, and it is called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. So if you're looking for a companion read um, to this book, I would suggest The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. So let's hop in. Good evening to all of you that's coming on. Reconstructing Black Marriage and Family Formation. 
the friction between black love and patriarchal state orchestrated matrimony began before the war was even over. Federal and ecclesial authorities charged with supervising or assisting contraband camps took great interest in black marriage and family arrangements and not always with noble intentions. Their efforts were frequently motivated by a desire not to secure black families in romantic relationships, but to ease the burden they feared indigent black women and children would place on the state. This mission was solidified in March 1865 when Congress established the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, usually known as the Freedmen's Bureau, to oversee relief efforts for former bonds persons and poor whites, as well as the general reconstruction of the social institutions in the South. Under this recovery plan, bureau agents were assigned responsibility for marrying black couples and influencing them to embrace monogamy and the gender roles expected of wives and husbands per European guidelines. In effect, the government sought to prepare post-enslaved African descendants for compliant citizenship through the institutions of heterosexual marriage and patriarchal family. By May 30, 1865, the Bureau Commissioner issued a circular ordering agents deployed across the South to register marriages, noting, quote, restrictions made by U.S. officers will be carefully preserved. The circular included provisions for the peculiar status of former bonds persons. Here is what it said. In places where the local statutes make no provisions for the marriage of persons of color, the assistant commissioners are authorized to designate officers who shall keep a record of marriages which may be solemnized by any ordained minister of the gospel who shall make a return of the same with such items as may be required for registration at places designated by the assistant commissioners. The circular also promised, quote, the unity of families and all the rights of the family relations will be carefully guarded. But this was a promise that the Bureau could not keep. Some relationships deviated from the customs associated with monogamous marriage and included plural marriages or alternative courtship and marital arrangements. Bureau agents believed any arrangement at variance with monogamy contaminated the sanctity of marriage and positioned women and children to become dependent upon the state. One agent spoke for many federal authorities who, with no regard for the intricate polygamous unions that enslavement had designed for a great number of African Americans, they insensitively imposed monogamous marriage upon former bondspersons and to the detriment of black women. Whenever a Negro appears before me with two or three wives who have equal claim upon him, he explained, I marry him to the woman who has the greatest number of helpless children who otherwise would become a charge or a burden on the Bureau. Through and though patriarchal monogamy may have been intended to guarantee stability and protection for women and children, it was an open question of what was to be done for the unrecognized and dismissed wives and children of the enslaved shattered polygamous marriages and family arrangements. This predicament was no incidental issue in the recollections of former bond women such as Hannah Jones. The, the N-words had three or four wives to be aware, as many as they could bear children by, she explained. But after the war, they had to take one woman and marry her. My mother had three children by him, and the other wives had three and four children too. So you have these situations because of enslavement and because of the breeding um, of uh, human beings that took place. You have these arrangements that the Freedmen's Bureau comes in and have no, they have no regard for. They have no regard for the fallout of the children and the women that are now attached because of the way that enslavement and breeding went down. As they said, whenever a Negro appeared before them with two or three wives due to the shadow in the chateau breeding that went on, I marry him to the woman who has the greatest number of dependents 
who would be helpless and would become a burden of the state system. Perhaps Jones's memory stretched back to breeding liaisons coordinated by slave owners because her comment relayed nothing of the enduring emotional bonds and unabandoned love expressed in the 1869 letter Laura Spicer's husband sent to her when four years of searching finally disclosed his whereabouts. Even after having married another woman whom he loved dearly, his adoration for his first wife and children endured. Send me some of the children's hair in a separate paper with their names on the paper, he wrote. But the desires for pieces of his children that could painlessly sacrifice was more than a powerful indication that they have a good father and one that cares for them and one that thinks about them every day, as he asked Laura to tell them. His specific instruction to distinguish each lock of hair by name signals a determination to channel his paternal affection into spiritually protective power. From a distance, this father could at least access African religious rituals to ensure the safety and thriving of his children that unpreventable circumstances deterred him from providing them. Addressing his first wife, Laura, directly, he insisted that she please get married as long as I am married, reminding her that it was never our wishes to be separated from each other and it never was our fault. Laura's husband freely confessed that he could not place his love for his second wife, Anna, above his love for her and closed his letter with copious declarations of unadulterated love for the wife that slavery had deprived him of loving and caring for in the flesh. Repeating Laura's name like a mantra, he ensured her that the special passion they shared in the flesh had never been extinguished. Quote, the woman is not born that feels as near to me as you do. You feel this day like myself. Laura, I think of you and my children every day of my life. Laura, I do love you the same. My love to you never have failed. I truly have got another wife, and I'm very sorry that I am. You feels and seems to me as much like my dear loving wife as you ever did. The complications that unraveled for black married couples after the Civil War were largely inherited from the culture of forbidden black love that took shape during enslavement. Unexpected love triangles and other prickly scenarios presented themselves in the immediate post-war years for many. In some circumstances, black women resolve such surprises by choosing to remain married to the same man, not necessarily as co-wives, but as co-mothers. After months making her way from Alabama to South Carolina to reunite with her husband and some of her children lost to her through the domestic slave trade, Dorcas Cooper was satisfied to remain in a polygamous relationship when she recognized how well her husband's new wife had taken care of her children. Cooper, in fact, liked her husband's second wife, Jenny, and would not let anybody say anything against her. The two women resided comfortably in the same house with their spouse until Cooper passed away. Federal and state authorities sought to recognize enslaved marriages from the previous era, regardless of whether former bonds persons actually desired to remain married to the partners their masters had selected for them. By doing so, former slaveholders and state and federal authorities could alleviate themselves of caring for the indigenous and destitute black populations that they had created through not giving them anything after freeing them from enslavement. Married black men would then assume such responsibilities as heads of their households. They would have to sort out how to put food on the table for their children, wives, and parents, as well as the sick, disabled, and elder relatives. Not only did states compel African Americans to register their marriages, but they also penalized them when their marital arrangements violated statutory definitions of a legitimate marriage or when they refused to register their marriages at all. In 1866, General Clinton Bowen Fisk, the Freedmen Bureau's Assistant Commissioner for Kentucky and Tennessee and founder of Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, published 16 lectures under the title Plain Councils for Freedmen. In his 17th lecture, quote, to married folks, 
He used his authority to place black coupling arrangements that emerged during slavery beyond the purview of respectable marriage. He said, when you were slaves, you took up with each other and were not taught what a bad thing it was to break the law of marriage. But now you can only be sorry for the past and begin life anew and on a pure foundation. You who have been and are now living together as husband and wife and have had children born to you should be married according to the law as soon as possible. Fisk's lectures appeared at a time when common law marriages among whites were not rare. However, even if slaveholders recognized the marriages of their human property, the very fact that enslaved persons were property and not citizens by law rendered their marriages ineligible for common law status. Fisk was not a lone voice in the wilderness of Reconstruction, determined to free post-enslaved blacks from their scandalous violations of God's law of marriage. The Freedmen's Spelling Book, published by the American Tract Society and distributed to post-enslaved persons around 1866, offered advice comparable to Fisk's. Lesson 252, the family specifically instructed former bonds persons to adopt what were presented as sacred and inviolable marital and familiar roles. The family relation was ordained by God in the Garden of Eden when he created Eve from one of Adam's ribs and brought her to him to be his wife. Quoting from the book of Ephesians in the Christian Bible, the lesson continued, quote, the Bible contains many directions to husbands, wives, parents, and children as to their duties toward each other. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Both documents were influential ideological devices designed to train post-enslaved individuals for the proper roles and responsibilities associated with an inflexible vision of married life. They established Christian boundaries of moral behavior for husbands, wives, and children, located the nuclear patriarchal family within a heterosexual household structure, the only legitimate basis for extended kinship networks. All previous arrangements that deviated from this model of Christian marriage and family would not be tolerated. Though, all previous arrangements that had been designed through enslavement was the problem. But while in some quarters, post-enslaved couples were lectured about the illegitimate status of their marriages and unions that had been forged under slavery, in other quarters, individual states found it expedient to rethink this determination. The state of North Carolina, for instance, quickly legalized black unions that had been formed during slavery. In 1865, its constitutional convention was sure to extend legal recognition of black relationships retroactively, declaring lawful the unions of all emancipated blacks who now cohabit together in relation of husband and wife, beginning with the time of commencement of such cohabitation. Deliberate calculation went into writing the act this way to ensure that support for children born prior to emancipation would remain with the parents rather than the state. In other words, yet another way of shirking the financial responsibility. The Georgia General Assembly approved a similar act on March 9, 1866, with penalties for men and women participating in polygamous unions. The act to prescribe and regulate the relation of husbands and wives between persons of color stipulated that persons of color now living together as husband and wife are hereby declared to sustain that legal relation to each other unless a man shall have two or more reputed wives or a woman two or more reputed husbands. The act went on to specify a remedy for post-enslaved men and women in plural marriages. In such event, the man immediately after the passage of this act of the General Assembly shall select one of his reputed wives with her consent or the woman, one of her reputed husbands with his consent and the ceremony of marriage between these two shall be performed. With no regard for the complicated situations that might have called for flexible marital arrangements, the act listed the range of criminal offenses non-compliance would invite. So 
let's be clear. Enslavement created the plurality of marriages, but after the emancipation, they set out to criminalize all of these plural marriages that had been created by slaveholders. They set out to criminalize and say, you are now in non-compliance with these new restrictions that we have placed upon you. Doesn't matter how you came to be in this predicament. If you don't rectify it according to how we want it done, you are now criminalized because now you're in non-compliance. If such man thus living with more than one woman or such woman living with more than one man shall fail or refuse to comply with the provisions of this section, he or she shall be prosecuted for the offense, get this, of fornication or fornication or adultery or fornication and adultery as punished accordingly. So it wasn't a sin for you to create breeding farms and create scenarios where women and men would have multiple spouses while you were benefiting from their labor, their free labor. But now that you can no longer benefit from their free labor, you are now criminalizing them. You have now decided that you're going to punish them and prosecute them for the crime of fornication and adultery. This is how whiteness works. <laughs> State marriage laws such as these rested on patriarchal foundations that had the effect of placing black men under scrutiny as the so-called heads of their households. Yes, now that we're done using your body for free labor, we have now cast you into the role of the head of household we have now placed westernized standards upon you and you must comply. And if you don't comply, we're going to prosecute you and put you back into a prison system, which was the only way they could re-enslave you. Remember? Not only in Georgia, but across former slaveholding states, black men were monitored and the adulterers were arrested. Some states, such as North Carolina and Florida, established a limited widow window excuse me, during which cohabiting couples could marry or face criminal prosecution for adultery and fornication. Couples often paid fees to marry at times presenting nothing more than six eggs or a quart of strawberries. Contemporary Americans, even African Americans, can hardly imagine how deeply the double-edged sword of the civil right to patriarchal monogamous marriage pierced the lives of post-enslaved blacks. When alienated husbands and wives sold away during slavery returned to spouses who had remarried, charges of bigamy often followed along with legal prosecution and penalties, aiming to simultaneously shore up slaveholders' free labor supply while solving the problem of indigent children, local judges followed up these bigamy charges by simply ordering the removal of black children from their families, placing them with former slaveholders under the guise of providing them adequate care. Injury after injury after injury after injury, all under the guise of we freed you now, now we're going to place you under a system. If you don't comply with that system, we're going to charge you, prosecute you, put you in jail. We're going to remove your children and we're going to place your children back under the care of the slaveholders that you just came out from under. Again, this is how whiteness works. There's always a way to re-enslave you or re-enslave your coming generation. State apprenticeship laws allowed this practice of child re-enslavement to explode for two years after emancipation as parents' protests went unheard. Only in 1867 Supreme Court ruling 
arrested this practice. So were they really concerned about the black family? Were they really concerned about adultery or even fornication? Were they even really concerned about, you know, putting the black family together? No. The goal of this was to remove the children and re-enslave them. And it went on for two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Why don't we hear more about it? Black widows or fraudulent wives. The precariousness of marriages during slavery was a harbinger of the new bureaucratic universe that would engulf African descendants in the years to come. Although Congress passed the General Law Pension System Act on July 14, 1862, only in July 1864 did Congress stipulate eligibility criteria for colored widows seeking pension benefits with no legal proof of marriage to a service-related deceased or disabled veteran. Most problematic for black women and blacks as a whole, the federal government's pension administration tended to view them as frauds and schemers who deserved added layers of security and policing that white petitioners generally did not face. Nearly two decades after the National Pension Plan was put into effect, in 1881, the United States Pension Bureau issued general instructions to special examiners of the United States Pension Office, which described guidelines for handling the cases of, quote, colored claimants, widows, and dependent relatives. The document offers a window into the minds of the Bureau agents examining and making decisions about their petitioners. It reveals an assumption that black widows were prone to fabricating evidence and concocting fictive dependents to bolter their cases and force them to go to extra lengths to prove the validity of their petitions under intense bureaucratic scrutiny. The general instructions even gave the bureau examiner the authority to invalidate the parentage of a couple's dependent children by assessing whether the complexion of the child matched those of the claimant and spouse. So when people talk about colorism and they continue to say that it didn't go both ways, it actually did. If you were a light-skinned child and you didn't match the color of your dark-skinned parents, then guess what? You were invalidated as their child. <laughs> Quote, the examiner should see all the children for whom pension is claimed. Their color may sometimes indicate whether they are the children of the soldier and the claimant. If a petitioner resides at a great distance from the place where she resided when the soldier was living, the examiner was instructed to inquire into the case so far as he can and forward the case file to the bureau so that a special examiner in that part of the country where the parties formerly resided could pursue witnesses and other required evidence. Nowhere did the general instructions encourage sympathy for and patience with post-enslaved claimants. Due to the impending factors such as structural illiteracy, undocumented births and marriages, and the inconsistency of surnames on military documents. In North Carolina, for example, black widows were swindled out of their pensions by white agents hired to prepare petitions and handle negotiations on their behalf. Others were interrogated extensively about their sexual history and made to account for disruptions in marriages they could not have avoided while living in bondage. The stories of claimants such as one Anne Blakely and Maria Ann Counts offer telling insight into these inner workings of the system. The Pension Bureau approved Blackley's widow's pension application in 1869 and issued her a check for more than $1,000 of accrued benefits. However, Blackley's agent, Seth Carpenter, denied receiving the funds. Later, when Carpenter was investigated for fraud due to numerous complaints, Special Agent George Ragsdale described him as a pension crook 
And because Blackley had remarried during the process, Ragsdale reported that he was convinced that Carpenter planned to cash her check himself when she remarried or if she died. For her part, claimant Maria Ann Counts was forced to disclose how sexual violation resulted in the birth of a daughter and a son during enslavement. When a bureau official inquired about the paternity of her children, Caroline and Census, both born before her marriage to Caesar Counts, she named William Green, her master's uncle, as the father. Even this public exposure of her past humiliation and trauma was not enough to win a pension in her lifetime. By the time her case was finally approved, Maria Counts had already passed away. This bureaucratic procedure was not merely a Southern phenomenon as black widows from the North faced similar pension bureau investigations as well. In 1878, Ohio resident Emily Carrick's pension benefits were terminated when the special agent overseeing her case determined that she had married Thomas Feek in Buffalo, New York, two years earlier. Although the laws of Ohio stated that cohabitation or the practice of living together as man and wife did not constitute marriage, Carrick was disqualified nonetheless on the grounds of marriage by cohabitation. Elizabeth Sybil's pension benefits were also discontinued on questionable grounds because no credible evidence could prove that she had violated bureau policies. Despite the bureau examiner's suspicion that the New York resident had lived as the wife of Charles Height for a period of two years, with communal acknowledgement of the couple's marital stat status, the investigation failed to uncover proof of formal marriage. Still expunging her from the roles, the examiner took the liberty to interpret her living arrangement to be consistent with the definition of marriage under New York state law. Sybil's case was terminated in 1881, just a year before the federal government would pass a law revoking the benefits of widows who were fortunate enough to find love and companionship following the death of a veteran spouse. On August 7, 1882, federal law declared that any widow receiving pension benefits found cohabitating or having engaged in illicit sexual relations with a man since her husband's death would be disqualified from collecting future benefits. Although not targeting African-American beneficiaries directly, the act placed an undue burden on black widows, many of whom had already gone extensive special investigations to receive approval at all. Though a considerable number of black widows petitions were ultimately approved, many were also denied. Out of a sample, of 1,946 African-American women who filed claims, one researcher found that 8,843, or 44%, were not approved. But what is also important to remember is how protracted and invasive the pensive process was for Black widows, whether they were successful at it or not. When comparing cases of poor white and Black widows, a distinct pattern emerged. Quite often, Black widows were required to undergo special examinations to prove their purported marriages to war veterans were legal. A similar study comparing the rate of approval for black and white widows in 350 pension applications found that 40% of black widows were denied pension benefits compared to 16% of their white counterparts. Even when the cases of black widows were approved, the scrutiny did not end. As the eventual termination of benefits for widows, such as Emily Carrick and Elizabeth Sybil illustrates. No fewer than 186,000 black men from slave states served in the Union Army, and more than 50% of them or their dependents petitioned the U.S. government for pension benefits. The flow of applications for pension benefits from black widows would increase after the depension Dependent, excuse me, Pension Act of 1890, which removed the condition of death or disability of a veteran spouse. Beginning in 1890, all veterans and dependents were eligible for benefits based on veteran service and honorable discharge. So, when black women say, 
that we have been getting the short end of the stick, whether we're single, widowed, or married in this country. Selah. Selah. Just pause for a moment and calmly think of all the ways that black women have been getting jacked over by the American government since the 1860s. Again, whether they were single, married, or widowed, they were often denied, over-scrutinized, given extra requirements, privacy invaded, and more, only to still be denied certain benefits. So, this is what I wanted to share with you tonight. We'll be back in Black Women, Black Love again on next Tuesday. Um, Pastor Ben, I'm going to bring you on because I know you probably have something to say. So, I'm going to go ahead and add you. That way I know your camera can come on. Hello. Hello. Where do you begin, right? Okay. You, you, make, you make laws against fornication and adultery mm-hmm. when you did them yourself. Right. And not only that, you raped men. And women. Mm-hmm. And women. Well, I'm, I'm pointing out the men because, you know, we know they rape women. Mm-hmm. But I'm pointing out the men. You raped men. Intimate assault. Intimate assault. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry. Right, right. Intimate assault. You intimately assaulted men. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make laws against adultery when you were married, but there you were intimately assaulting black women. Mm-hmm. I believe that is adultery. Mm-hmm. And fornication. And then if you were not married, and then if you were not married, you still did that, and that's called fornication. Mm-hmm. So now we know. So now we know two things. We know that. We know that morality was only used as a weapon. It wasn't really something they believed in. We know that we know that now for sure. Right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Same exactly. Right You're right. Same thing happening right now. Yeah. You make laws, but they only apply to people of color, not white racist people. Um to the point to where it also applies to to liberals, but not conservative Trump supporters. Yeah. Well actually I, I have to say, I have to say, it, it, conservatives. It applies as conservatives now, as long as they, as long as they don't agree with mm. uh, the Trump GOP. Let me answer this question really quickly. So, I'm using I'm using the term intimate assault because Facebook will will ding your videos for using the other word. There are certain words on Facebook that get your videos reported, so that's why I'm using that term other than that i used to i would use it but that's why i changed the term go ahead you know so so again that's what you call hypocritical yeah that's like beyond hypocritical like you have set the scenario with these enslaved you set the scenario with these enslavement breeding farms you are literally just breeding black people and putting them in these what what they're describing as polygamous relationships, it really wasn't even that most of the time. It was I'm I'm blindfolding you, I'm blindfolding you, and go in there and do and do the business and get me some more shadow. It wasn't even that humane. You know what I'm saying? And it's like you have now tried to um legitimize 
this situation you've created, you've tried to clean it up. That's probably a better term. You've tried to clean up the situation you've created with all of these millions of people and children that are now being set free because you don't want to take care of all these children. Cause remember they said the state, the burden was going to be on the state to pay for all of these children that was now running around here free. So now I'm going to pair you. I'm going to, for my benefit, for the benefit of the state to not have any, to have less financial responsibility. I'm going to pair you with the wife or the husband that you have the most kids by because I don't want to pay for all those kids that we demanded that y'all make in bondage. Ain't that a hot, Ooh, God. <laughs> I'm just like the nerve, the absolute nerve. Like how much nerve do you have to have to do that? When it was to your benefit, you were like, just pump them out. We don't care. Just pump them out. Because each one of you was cash, capital, and credit for this nation. But now uh-huh. that we have to remove the value off of you all because we can't use you as property anymore. Now it's on you all uh-huh. to take care of what we created. The root and heart of why the USA does not have a universal health care and welfare system. Exactly, Allison. You nailed it. That, this is the start of. This is the start of the, the concept of the welfare system. And you, and you can actually, you know, you can actually trace it on through and see where this whole idea of how many dependents do you have comes from and why they are so angry (laughs) and why they would place limits on the number of dependents when they saw black women were having these, these multiple kids because it comes from a root. They never wanted to take care of the dependents that, that, that have been created through enslavement. So you know good and well, they don't want to take care of them now. Which is why someone like Clinton came along. And I think he was the one that signed kind of the initial legislation about, okay, when you have four kids, you don't get an increase in benefits. Because they were trying to stop people from having from collecting more money from the state based on the increased number of children that they were producing. They were like, wait a minute, the buck stops here. (laughs) Oh my God. Just wicked. Go ahead. Wasn't it Paul Mooney? Wasn't it Paul Mooney that said, as long as you were getting our labor free, it was okay. We were hard workers, but as soon as you freed us and had to pay us, then we became lazy. Mm-hmm. You want to call us lazy? Yeah. I had to. I actually had to straighten some out on Facebook uh, last week because they were calling us lazy. You need to do this. You need to do that. I said, "Well, okay. How about it was your people that started this whole thing?" Because I said they were so lazy. <laughs> they actually left America, went to Africa, got my descendants, and brought them back here to work. For free, and that's how this country got its wealth. Or oh, where well, they didn't get—that's not the way they got all the wealth. I say about the ninety percent of their wealth was in cotton. Ninety-nine. Major crop. <laughs> and who did that? Well, ninety-nine, ninety-nine percent. Okay. Yeah. Well, but who did that? The free labor. So no, and I let them know. I let them know. I said, listen, now if y'all want to do this right, I mean, because those are the facts. If y'all want to do this right, then pay us what our, our descendants did. See, I said, then at that point, everything is, everything will level out. Just give us that money. It's, it's so, it's, to me, this is, do. To, to me, this is so egregious because you don't even want to pay for free labor 
right? You don't want to, this, this nation doesn't even want to study. Here's why they don't want to study how much they owe because they know, because they know (laughs) they owe us. They owe us on so many different issues on so many different levels that whatever number you throw out there is still not going to be what is truly owed. But my thing is that shouldn't stop you from starting the freaking repair process. <laughs> that shouldn't stop you from starting from from starting the repair process. As a matter of fact, just the data that we have should morally motivate you to start the repair process. But clearly we are so morally bankrupt that we would now charge the formerly enslaved, the formerly enslaved with adultery and fornication. We would now try to charge them with the same things that we okayed during the slave trade. So you, so you okayed it and you weren't really caring about moral boundaries during the enslavement process. You were breaking all kinds of sexual and moral codes during enslavement. But all of a sudden, after enslavement, you want to get a moral backbone and start prosecuting, criminalizing, and then removing the children. And now that is the, that is just like, I I can't even, you criminalize them, you prosecute them. You put them in jail. So now you are, you are removing them away from their children again. And then Uh you take those children and give them back to the slave owners. So now that too becomes a new form of enslavement. You're, you're on mute. Go ahead. Reparations. Yeah, one of my one of my uh, solutions for reparations was that sixty nine billion dollars per day <laughs> that they're paying for a war. If we're not even if we're not even at war, but they're paying sixty nine billion dollars per day for war. We're not even going to talk about the six hundred and seventeen billion dollars per day that they're paying for military forces. We'll discard that. But the $69 billion per day for war, and we're not even at war. Yeah. You can do that. That's not a problem. But to give black folks $100,000, oh, well, we can't do that. We can't pay reparations. (laughs) We can't, you know. Oh, my goodness. People built this country, literally built the White House, literally built the country, but you can't give them it. Now we can give it to everybody else, but we can't give it to you. Listen, I want to encourage every black woman, every black family to get a copy of this book. This is just a piece of the story that's being told. It's not even the full story, Right. Earlier tonight, I talked about a companion reading you can do called The Whiteness of Wealth. This is talking about how the tax system impoverishes black Americans and how we can fix it. So we continue to see, and the tax system didn't start into the 60s, (laughs) but it looks like every single system when we talk about how this country is is grounded in white supremacy when we talk about how this country is grounded in inequality this is what we mean american black man always seen as unworthy of the least humane of treatment correct because part of that is i don't want to recognize your humanity and what these laws show us is the continued process of dehumanizing activities. 
It's a, it's showing you a continual process of how the law disregards us as humans because you don't treat humans like this. And that's, that's, that's really what it is. Um, and so thank you all for taking the time to, to conversate tonight. Go ahead. As we close, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Now this is the thing. Isn't the root word of, doesn't the word human come from the word humane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're not humane, which they're not, how can they be called human? Good question. Because human don't treat people the way you treat people uh, simply because of the color of their skin. That's not humane, which means that apparently you're not human. What yeah. are you? Yeah. This has been, this is oh, definitely, okay. this is definitely um, something that I encourage my, my sisters, my brothers to dig into, dig into this. Um, and as long as we're living, we're not going to stop demanding what is owed. In the words of a of a of an author, he said, "You can't kill us all. We know you'd like to, but you can't kill us all. So we are going to continue to educate. We're going to continue to inform. Hopefully, we're going to continue to help people have more and more insight into why it is that we do need to be demanding repair. It's not something that." You know, oh, maybe we should or no, we're not. You don't have to cower down from this topic. There is enough evidence on the books. They know what they've done. They know what is owed. We just have to press. We have to press for it because clearly they're not going to just give it to us. Right. Power concedes nothing without a demand. So this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. Again, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Please share this video out. If it was beneficial to you, if you heard something or learned something um, that you didn't know before, that's going to maybe um, inspire you and add to what you know, please feel free to share this video out. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be what, Pastor Ben? Be light. Thank you all so much. Have a great night. Good night, Allison.